Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn. Cole Hahn's shoes, bags, and outerwear go with you while you work your way to extraordinary. More at colehahn.com. In this episode, we feature poet Joy Harjo. Harjo became the first Native American Poet Laureate of the United States when she was appointed in 2019 and is currently serving her third term in that post. She joined us as part of Portland Arts and Lectures on April 20th from her home in Tulsa. During her laureateship, she edited two landmark anthologies, When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through, a Norton Anthology of Native Nations Poetry, and Living Nations, Living Words, an anthology of First Peoples Poetry. Harjo uses these two projects as a basis to structure her talk, which takes us deep into the history of Native American poetry, from periods when it was an oral tradition to the first appearance of written poetry in the 17th century all the way to the current day. These anthologies gather together work from hundreds of languages, nations, and tribes to present the reader with the breadth and depth of a tradition that continues to flourish, but that was left out erased or otherwise made invisible by editors, publishers, and academics over the centuries. Harjo's work resurfacing these poems and poets is vital to our understanding of ourselves as a nation because, as Harjo says, a nation is defined by its literature. In the second half of this episode, Harjo will be in conversation with Oregon's Poet Laureate and Literary Arts Board member Anise Majgani. Majgani is an international poetry slam champ and the author of five books of poetry, most recently in The Pockets of Small Gods. His first children's book is forthcoming from Chronicle Books, and his poem, Closer, was included in the recently published anthology, African American Poetry, edited by Kevin Young. But first, here's Joy Harjo from the Portland Arts and Lectures virtual stage. Living Nations, Living Words, The Power and Place of Language. Henje Stongo, Mado for this gathering. Mado is thank you in the Muscogee language. We are here to acknowledge the gift of life, to express gratitude for coming together, to try and understand another part of ourselves through another history, another set of ideas, another cultural lens. Together, we are in times of national chaotic cultural and climactic breakdown, and more than ever, the American and world communities need what the arts provide. It's the arts and literature that carry the spirit of a people. If we are to survive, even thrive as a people, it will be because we take care of the arts and nourish our cultures, which means including all peoples. If this country is to integrate spiritually, creatively, and profoundly, we must nourish the roots. There is no America without Native nations, arts, cultures, languages, and humanities. Without the acknowledgement and inclusion of indigenous roots of a diversity of Native cultures, a land, a country is unmoored without stability. In the last few years, we witnessed the standoff at Standing Rock Reservation in the Dakotas where techniques of dispossession and group violence we hadn't seen since the civil rights movement were used against those who stood up against a pipeline that would destroy the environment. Deb Holland and Cherise Davids were elected as the first two Native Women Congress members. I was the first Native appointed U.S. Poet Laureate. A landmark Supreme Court decision confirmed the existence of the Muscogee Creek Nation Reservation. Deb Holland was sworn in as the first Native cabinet member as the Secretary of the Interior. We have also suffered the highest mortality rates for COVID and have lost major culture bearers. 
To lose each culture bearer is like losing a library of concise knowledge. It is in these times of great change and the emergence of a more national Native presence that I have assisted in the production of two Norton anthologies of Native poetry. When the light of the world was subdued, our songs came through a Norton anthology of Native Nations poetry, a comprehensive anthology of Native poetry from time immemorial to the present, was published August 25, 2020, at the beginning of my second term as Poet Laureate. Living Nations, Living Words, an anthology of First Peoples Poetry, the collection of poetry from the Library of Congress Poet Laureate Project, a digital mapping of 47 contemporary Native poets, will be published May 4th, 2021. Each occupies a very different kind of anthological place, and each have very different origin stories. With the first anthology, when the light of the world was subdued, we understood that with any indigenous project, we begin with the land. We emerge from the earth of our mother and our bodies will be returned to earth. We are the land. We cannot own it, no matter any proclamation by paper or state. Our spirits inhabit this place. We are creators of this place with each other. We mark our existence with our creations. It is poetry that holds the songs of becoming, of change, of dreaming, and it is poetry we turn to when we travel to those places of transformation, like birth, coming of age, marriage, accomplishments, and death. When the first colonizers from the European continent stepped into our tribal territories, we were assumed illiterate because we did not communicate primarily with written languages, nor did we store our memory in books and on papers. Yet, our indigenous nations prized and continued to value the word. The ability to speak in metaphor, to bring people together, to set them free in imagination, to train and to teach was and is considered valuable, more useful than gold, oil, or anything else than newcomers craved. Many of our known texts, though preserved in orality, stand next to the top literary text, oral or written. The Dene Blessing Way chant, or Hajoni, is a poetic song text that is remembered word for word and is central to a ceremony for setting a community a community in the direction of beauty or healing. The Pele and Hi'iaka saga of two sisters in an epic poem that carries profound cultural significance to this day in the practice and fresh creation of Olelo Hawaii, like the Mahabharata of the Hindu religion or the Iliad of ancient Greece, every culture, every tradition has its literature that guides and defines it and the cultures indigenous to North America are no different. What then distinguishes indigenous poetry from other world poetry traditions? Much depends on indigenous language constructs, which find their way into poems written in other languages as in English here. My own poem, She Had Some Horses, would not have been written without stomp dance or without having heard Navajo horse songs. So many poetry techniques are available, whether it's utilizing metaphor, syntactic patterning, or some other application of poetic tools. And those of us who read and listen to, the, to poetry want our ears and perception bent for unique insight and want to see how the impossible becomes momentarily possible in the arrangement of language and meaning. This is true of poetry of all languages. What is shared with all tribal nations in North America is the knowledge that the earth is a living being and a belief in the power of language to create, to transform, to establish change. Words are living beings. Poetry in all its forms, including songs, oratory, and ceremony, both secular and sacred, is a useful tool for the community.
Even as we continue to create and perform our traditional forms of poetry, we have lost many of those canonical oral texts due to the destruction throughout the Western Hemisphere of the indigenous literary field by the loss of our indigenous languages. We were forced to forsake our languages for English in the civilizing genocidal process. We are aware of the irony, for many of us, of our writing in English. But we also believe English can be another avenue through which to create poetry, and poetry in English and other languages can live alongside texts created and performed within our respective indigenous languages. Within the pages of When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through, you will find 161 poets representing more than 90 nations. There were many more poets we wanted to include, but we were limited by the available number of pages. It was not possible to publish an anthology representing all of our native nations. We are more than 573 federally recognized indigenous tribal nations in mainland United States. 231 are located in Alaska alone. That number doesn't include the indigenous peoples of Hawaii, the Kanaka Maoli, whose nation numbers over 500,000. We speak more than 150 indigenous languages. While there have been significant contributions from previously published native poetry anthologies, there are no other anthologies that attempt to address the historical arc of time and place of indigenous nations' poetry as this one. The poets we're honored to include in this anthology span four centuries, from the 17th century to the present. These poets range in age from high school students whose poems appeared in tribal and community newspapers in the late 1800s, to today's spoken word artists, to a poet like Louis Little Coon Oliver, whose first book of poetry was published after he turned 80 years old. When I began the process of making this book, I realized that the only way I could take on an historic, comprehensive poetry anthology would be to recruit a circle of contributing editors and advisors. As a faculty member then at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, I was provided with student assistance and was able to engage students in my courses in the first steps of development and gathering. Leanne Howe, Choctaw, Jennifer Forrester, Muskogee joined me as executive and associate editors. We decided that the core selection and editing team would be made up of indigenous poets. When American Indian literature began as a recognized field of academic endeavor in the 1970s, most, if not nearly all the scholars in attendance were non-native. We wanted to show how this field was developed. We engaged five teams of editors, a team for each geographical section featured, comprised of poets indigenous to that region. Because land is central to culture and identity, we organized the collection into five geographical regions. We employed the Muskogean directional path, which begins east to north, continues to west, and then to the south. Each tribal nation is very different in orientation, ritual, and practices. The first section then is Northeast and Midwest. This geographical area is characterized by rivers and lakes carved by glaciers. The first colonizers were the English. The puritanical influence from the early beginnings of countryhood have continued to mark American culture and law. The poems from this region begin with a timeless dream song of the Anishinaabeg, translated into English in the early 1900s and close with a poem by B. William Bearhart, born in 1979, that references an Andy Warhol painting of Geronimo he saw in a gallery in Las Vegas. We continue on this circle to plains and mountains. These lands bore many road and railroad paths crossing indigenous territories as European immigrants moved west. The poems of Elsie Fuller, born in 1870, and Zitgalasa, also known as Gertrude Simmons Bonin, born in 1876, open this section. It closes with a poem by Duckwater Shoshone, Southern Ute, and Pyramid Lake Paiute Nation citizen Tanea Winder, born in 1985. 
that a poem that is informed by the tragic loss of a beloved by suicide, which is epidemic among our tribal nations. Pacific Islands, Pacific Northwest, and Alaska comprises the largest geographical area and has been the most challenging to represent. These lands veer from the Arctic Circle to islands in the Pacific that are more than 2,000 miles from any large land base to the northwestern mainland jutting out into the Pacific. These poems begin with the first epic in the Kumulipo, a Hawaiian creation chant translated by Queen Liliuokalani in 1897. She was dethroned by U.S. businessmen who wanted the lands for commerce. There are also excerpts from a speech by Chief Seattle made in 1954, translated by the beloved Vi Hilbert, and prayer song Asking for a Whale, told in St. Lawrence Island, Yupik, by Lincoln Blasey, who was born in 1892. The last poems by spoken word poet Jamaica, Heolime Le Kalani Osorio, native Hawaiian Kanaka Mali, born in 1991, and Ishmael Hope, 1981, Tlingit and Inupiaq, whose canoe launching into the gaslit sea emerges directly from the oral traditions to entreat the people to come together. The lands of the southwest and west include the bones and arches of mussel in all its mineral color, high pines and desert all the way to the Pacific Ocean. These poems open with the Indian Requiem by Arsenius Chaleco, Yuma, born in 1889. Many poems of this time fell into the vanishing Indian trope. His poem makes a turn to include the vanishing white man. This section includes, closes with a poem by Diné poet Jake Skeets, born in 1991, called Drunk Town, which ventures into the painful territory of a border town that slinks violently against native lands. We come around to the final section, the southeast, an area that suffered from ferocious land grabs. Andrew Jackson and his predecessors removed most of the indigenous populations to Indian Territory, land west of the Mississippi, primarily present-day Oklahoma, deemed by the U.S. government as land reserved for relocation. One of the first poems presented for the southeast is Sequoia by Joshua Ross. Cherokee Nation of Alabama, born in 1833. This poem honors the man who invented the Cherokee syllabary. The section closes with a poem by Laura Mann, Choctaw, born in 1983, who returns to the Naniwaya Cave of her rebirth. This makes a circle, and we once again face east, which is the direction of beginning. And it will begin again with the next generation of poets, the children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren of those poets speaking here within these pages. When I started my term as the 23rd U.S. Poet Laureate, I immediately began considering a signature project. As the first Native Nations Poet Laureate, I was aware that indigenous peoples of our country are often invisible or are not seen as human. You will not find us fairly represented, if at all, in the cultural storytelling of America and nearly non-existent in the American Book of Poetry. Yet we have always been here, beneath the surface of American poetic consciousness, and have questioned how there can be an American poetry without our voices. I conceived the idea of project mapping the U.S. based on the poetry of Native Nations poets. I like the idea of mapping America by poets and poetry. The poems in this anthology and mapping project are not organized around geography. We could begin anywhere on the map, for each place might be the naval place of a creation story, somewhere in the middle of the story, or a place of departure. We begin with East, or Becoming, the eastern seaboard and bordering states was the site of a major push of colonization. The tribal nations here were inspirational to the root culture of America. The Iroquois and Muscogee peoples inspired the American democratic government, even as the native nations were diminished by history. East is considered the direction of becoming the sunrise place. 
Each of these poems establishes that heritage is a living thing and there can be no heritage without land and the relationships that outline our kinship. In the center or north-south, we are at the middle of the country, far away from the Atlantic or Pacific Oceans, in that physical place which metaphorically represents the belly and the heart of presence and knowledge of understanding. It is the place of crossroads. These are poems of affirmation, humor, and fury. As with any map, we are invested in where we are going. This brings us to the last section, West or Departure. Here we are looking forward into the future, constructing fresh meaning from knowledge passed to us by our ancestors and weaving it with fresh experience. It is important here to remember that until 1978, cultural tribal nation expression was outlawed. It wasn't until the passing of the American Indian Religious Freedom Act in 1978 that we were free to practice our indigenous cultures in the United States. This act included access to sacred sites, freedom to worship through ceremonial and traditional rites, and use and possession of sacred objects. We did not have organized religion per se, rather the whole earth is a sacred site. A poem can be considered a sacred site in which so much of our culture is stored, made into forms to be acknowledged, given a place, even a place to hide. Many of our oldest and most traditional poems and songs contain maps of the stars, roadmaps, or precepts of spiritual knowledge. My intention as Poet Laureate has been to bring the many voices of our peoples, voices that range through time across many lands and waters, to the American story. Through these two anthologies, it has been the intention of the editors and poets for readers to encounter the poems and hear a unique human voice speaking beyond, within, and alongside time, to recognize that despite the history, the cultural, repression, and disappearance attempts, the damage, even carnage, natives and native nations have persisted. Within our arts, cultures, and expressions of humanity, we have tended and envisioned ourselves as full members of resilient and living cultures. We are in the present. It is within our cultural and artistic creations that we have freshly rooted images, sounds, and stories that can help restore the American story, that can assist in the care of the environment, in the quality of human beings for Igana Jaga, which is Mother Earth in the Muscogee language. The map making represented by these two anthologies comes at a crucial time in history, a time in which the failures to acknowledge, listen, and to consider everyone when making the map of American memory has brought us to reckoning. I appreciate how Sherwin Bitsui expresses the quandary of being an indigenous poet writing in English with a Navajo mind and sense of language. As he says in his commentary for this project, these two systems merge to create a world attempting to restore itself when change is inevitable. I love that. I'm going to read it again. These two systems merge to create a world attempting to restore itself when change is inevitable. Maybe we are at the place where many roads come together under the dimming sun. We must make a new map together where poetry is sung. We must be ready to reopen the wound and even open to revising the story. And that is done by the artists, the thinkers, and the dreamers, those who can envision from this immense field and indigenous artists must be part of the leadership in the revision of the American story. We can change the story. I bow down to the story keepers, to the keepers of poetry. I'm reminded of the water spider who, when the earth was covered with water, carried an ember on her back so we could make fire to keep the story going. Everything is a prayer in the becoming as she approaches us, swimming through time. Maro. Thank you. Welcome, Joy. I am so excited to talk with you. Well, it's good to be here wherever here is. I guess it's Portland and Tulsa. Yes, yes. One of the things that I'm very curious about is to hear a little bit more about the arrangement of both the anthologies. 
particularly since like with both of them, there's such a relationship to geography and such a relationship to land. And what was your relationship and intent and excitement about building these two books in these two ways? Well, they're both very different. When the Light of the World was subdued was more a comprehensive anthology as much as an anthology can be comprehensive that's supposed to go from time immemorial <laughs> to the present, to the youngest poets, and uh, of over 574 federally recognized tribes, tribal nations, and we had originally 350 pages assigned, mm -hmm. and then we, we, it went up to over, a little over 400. So organizing that, it made sense to do it by place mm -hmm. because geography is such huge areas, certainly huge areas of time also. Well, what was really kind of exciting to watch as the editing team, which were all native poets, and we had our assistant editors who were my students at UTK when mm -hmm. I was teaching there, was to see once we got the poetry in those areas and started reading, we read a lot of poetry and organizing it chronologically in time in those different areas. We began to see the story of like colonization, mm -hmm. how it happened in different parts of the country. And we could also, we also began to see how much landscape played in the poetry. One of the things that I was struck in reading a multitude of your work, and it popped up in one of the early poems from um, Carlos Santos Perez. Um, uh -huh. There's a line in uh, their poem that says to be made foreign in one's own homeland. And that idea, that truth of experiencing a diaspora while still feasibly remaining, living in one's homeland, you know, and that, that, that strikes me as a particularly unique and particularly sorrowful diaspora. Uh, it makes sense that there would be such a relationship to the land um, coming out through these poems. The relationship to the land for indigenous people is very different. Those ties are very deep and rooted. Our stories, our songs, our, our, the spirit of our people is still, you know, deeply embedded. Yes. In the, and even if we've been displaced, even if we've been moved, so that when it got to the Poet Laureate Project, I thought it was important that we, that indigenous people are seen as part of one American poetry, but we're, that we're seen, it's seen that we're alive and living people. Mm -hmm. Because so many, I, I had, a, I have a, I play music sometimes with Larry Mitchell, who grew up in um, Bed-Stuy area, and he said he would go to school, you know, in, in New York City, and they were taught that all the all natives were dead, and a lot of people think we are because they don't see us. We might be standing right next to you, but if we're not wearing um, uh, powwow outfits, and not all yeah. of us are powwow, <laughs> then we're not living. It's like, well, you're not wearing the traditional outfits of your people. Exactly. <laughs> One of the things that like struck me in, in Living Nations, the arrangement of it, beginning slash east, central, north, south, west slash departure, uh, which I love that it's departure, not like ending, you know, like that speaks to something completely different, you know, but like this idea that you write to of people being of the land and being connected to the land. And then at the same time, that heritage being a living thing. And so thus that like uh, continual relationship and dialogue, I think, that, that, that must be happening between us and that which is, quote-unquote, gone, that which is the spirit, that which once was, and how that continues to live inside of the land. Yes, if you, if you go onto the Library of Congress site and see the project itself, all that makes sense. What we have are poets, what I love. Okay, there's a map, and it's a digital map. It's blue, green. It's earth, water. There are no political boundaries mm -hmm. of states. There's no political boundary between Mexico and the U.S. No boundary between Canada and the U.S. You see land. Yes. And then each poet, you, you see a poet's name on a part of the land, and you, you uh, click on it, you see the poet, you hear them talk about place. 
Some people speak from the place of their origin story for their tribal nation. Others are far away. Mm-hmm. And there's a story there. We don't really think about it so much about how utterly land-inspired, fed, based, etc. we are. Mm-hmm. We, we literally are. Mm-hmm. And it was really important that natives be seen as living people and as voices that have a place. Mm-hmm. What has it meant being the National Poet Laureate, like right now in this specific time that we are experiencing, particularly as, as, as the first Native Poet Laureate of, of the U.S.? You know, what, is, what does that mean for you like right now in this time? I think that I'll have the, I will know the full answer when my third term <laughs> ends at the end of April, beginning of May 2022. Yes. <laughs> but... I came into this position at a very um, unsettled time in a time of pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, came within a half a year after I'd been in as Poet Laureate, U.S. Poet Laureate. So we've been dealing with with so much in, you know, so much. At the same time, we had a landmark decision with for my tribal nation that said that reaffirmed that we were part of the Muscogee Creek Nation Reservation, mm-hmm. which set off a lot of hate in the state and people trying to undo it right away. Yeah. But what I've done is I I feel like I'm kind of the door I'm holding the door open, <laughs> you know. I'm saying, okay, here I'm holding the door open. There's look at all these poets. We have so many kinds of poets, and it, this is the time that we go to the poets. This mm-hmm. is the time that we need the poets in poetry, because the poets are the truth tellers. At least that's how I've always believed the, that the role of the poet is a truth teller. Yes. And it, and we're in times when to tell the truth is, can be dangerous, or to be the truth, or to be just who we are can be dangerous. Very much so. Uh-huh. There's a question from someone in the audience uh, from Jen uh, that I wanted to, to, to ask since we were talking about this, what we're talking about right now, but uh, they asked, can you talk about your thoughts on the relationship between art and resilience? Uh, where do I start? That's, <laughs> an... <laughs> That's what I grew up with. I grew up at the feet of, you know, I grew up at the feet of uh, everybody, you know, Adrian Rich, Audrey Lord. You know, Ishmael Reed was there, Ricardo Sanchez, um, so many. I mean, in, in music, John Coltrane, I mean, Bob Marley. <laughs> you Do you feel you that start? the two are, are intertwined or that they just sometimes bump and share space together? Oh, music and poetry? Well, that as well, but, but with regards to art and resilience. Well, I think that art is resilience. You think about what artists do or what poets do. I know that with poetry, I don't know where I'm going. I, I know that it becomes, you just use the word cumulative, but it's this kind of cum, accumulation of a, a vision mm-hmm. that where does it come from? The momentum has started long before me. Mm-hmm. There are many dreams, bodies, visions, thoughts, travels, journeys before I got here. And my art, which I still don't understand. Yeah, I just finished a new memoir. I just finished a new mi- music album. I pray for my enemies and a new memoir, Poet Warrior. And I, in the memoir, I was thinking, and I say I still don't understand it, except that I know that artists and their art is always usually ahead, mm-hmm. stepping ahead because it's what we do not know. But it's what we need. It's a kind of map. I have a map thing. I kind of have a map thing. Which I love. <laughs> but, yeah. But it's a kind of, the art becomes a map of thinking, okay, where, where are we going? Mm-hmm. Questions. We don't have answers. Art has questions. It doesn't have answers. So where are we going? It might take this shape or this color, but whatever it is, it has to hold the spirit of the people. Mm-hmm. And it has to, at the end, even if it is revolutionary and breaking apart ideas, that it is making openings. It is making openings so that the spirit of the generations, the generations that follow, have an impetus mm-hmm. and a, a kind of direction to say this is 
who we are. This is who we were. This is who we're becoming. This is who we might become. But, you know, we're human beings and we fail and there have been wars, but we're thinking of a future that in which, you know, it's, it's this ongoing act of, you know, and it is about resilience. Mm -hmm. All of it is really about resilience and how to keep going in a way that is, um, I like to think with grace. I mean, I'm always thinking of trying to do things with grace, even while I'm always bumping into things and <laughs> not, not really being the most graceful of sorts. So, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, definitely. I think about when we have been outlawed, even our presence is outlawed as mm -hmm. human beings, that how so many of the peoples, uh, keep keep the culture going they go underground they bury it in designs they bury paths and songs mm -hmm. you know have ways to keep going that's even beyond us sometimes well like you know what you mentioned about art being and not just like art being cumulative but like the art making the process of it being cumulative you know that like there's however much of wherever it is that it's coming from that you know like um like standing into into the river and like where what all the water that has like continuously arrived from its source to wherever it is that we are staying and as an individual in it that act of cumulative imagination cumulative process of art feels so i think like relevant right now because like it it it, it does build up and it does pile up and like being able to kind of like take all that is continuously being given to us from that which once was and entered into this like allows us i think like to embrace that resilience a bit a bit more strongly perhaps mm -hmm. the um you 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 mentioned about uh uh music and poetry and and I, you know i i am curious also like you know with you being a musician and, and being a poet um you know what is that relationship uh I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to like, how does your music and your poetry converse with each other? How do they inspire and infer upon one each other? And when does one become the other? It's all so different. I mean, I, I, I think of the voice, like the voice I'm using to speak is the same as the voice on paper. Mm -hmm. Also my saxophone voice. And my, it's the same one. And I often just write poems as poems, but I've always heard the music were the poems from way back. Mm -hmm. I just had to work into, you know, I didn't start playing horn until I was almost 40. And then my voice, then it brought my voice back because there was some traumatic stuff that happened when I was about 16 that I walked away from it. Mm -hmm. So it's been a kind of process. But music, I think of them as they're just right here together. Uh, in in our traditional culture, when I started writing poetry, I thought, I'm, where does it occur? And yes, we have poets. We've had poets who write on paper, mm -hmm. but it's um, you you hear our poetry more in song language and in oratory. And there's certain forms of oratory that I love. Yes, that you only hear. You don't hear it out here, but you hear in certain places, yeah. and it's incredible. And well, it's a certain kind of language. You know, yeah. it's a I love poetry because poetry to me is, it's like, it's not everyday language, although it can be made of everyday language, but it's a language that takes us uh, where words can't go. And I like that irony is that that's what poetry does. It takes us where words can't go. And so music is always right there to help it along. Yes. Like myself, I have a pretty sizable relationship between that which I write and that what I perform. And, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and I, you know, I hesitate usually to think of like it is performance because I'm just simply like offering up the poem, you know, into the space of the world. But like the two, you know, similarly so, as you were mentioning, like they're not they don't feel like different. Like the poem has to have, I think, a musicality, even if it's never lifts off of the page, you know, that its roots is in is in something that is being spoken, something that is being shared between like a person's voice and a person's ear. And so, like, that, I think, is inherent to the form, even if it's just text on a page. Like, it's never just text on the page, even if that's simply the vessel that has to arrive in. There are always oral roots, but I remember 
at uh, univer when I went to the University of Iowa for graduate school to be a perform a performance poetry was it was a pejorative you know it was a pejorative descriptor of poetry it's like I remember Robert Bly coming to uh, perform at you know it was an invited poet and many of the the faculty and in uh, students were horrified he was putting on a mask and he was you know, he was performing and walking through the audience, and I thought it was thrilling. Folks were but horrified. I, yes, I was in the minority. I was anyway. <laughs> yeah, but um, yes, that it was considered. And I remember being told this in a class that that the word of poetry should exist with no emotionality. Mm-hmm that it has to be able to stand on its own and you could not manipulate to use emotion or performance was to manipulate it, that the language needed to be pure without us. And that sounds like such a puritanic kind of approach. Especially since the language arrives to us in the way that it wants to arrive to us, you know? And so like, like the language itself does not arrive to us without emotion. You know, it comes to us with purpose, with passion, with intent. It's a pulsing thing. It's a pulsing being. It's organic, you know, and um, it has it carries its own life. It carries its own emotions. Yeah, and I think it's cultural difference, but then cultural difference has been turned into a hierarchy or a caste system, kind of. Yeah. Because I remember I play with a band. I, we got drums. I love percussion. And I love all kinds of drumming and all this, you know, in my music. And then I remember going to hear a classical concert. I hadn't been to one in years. And European classical, because we have many classical traditions. And I'm sitting there, it was beautiful. And I thought, wait a minute, where are the drums? I hear a timpani. And I thought, where's the drums? <laughs> you know, but it's just, so I can, I accept that there are cultural differences for mm-hmm. some people. It is important that they do not, you know, that's important to them that they approach that way. But then why? make those people with drums, you know, yes. why say that, okay, your, your expression of poetry is, is worth much less than ours. That was one of my big points of resistance, you know, coming up as a poet was to yeah. say, wait a minute, all, all of us, all of these are possibilities. We live in a diverse world. And yet there's, there's still that kind of judgment from the literati. It brings to mind, like the other week, I read something um, that a person had, had posted online, Shanyu Estelle, a writer and, and a soothsayer, and she was speaking about how colonization coming to cultures in which like language is rooted in that which is spoken, and like that's how things are passed, that's how things are shared, that's how like we remember everything that we are given, and um, and that that gets like carried within like us as a people, uh, but then with the written text coming along, it gets shifted and one thing becomes that which is less than. And so like you end up with this, uh, you know, many, many bodies of people that are like stripped of that in which ways in which they communicated because they're being told that like, some of them are being told that this is less than to be able to like speak a people, mm-hmm. to speak a, a history, and you have to have a written history, otherwise it's worthless, um, you know, that is taken away from them. So, you know, like, there definitely is this, like, hierarchy that comes into play with, I think, very specific reasons to sort of strip a people of who they are. And yet all of literature is, uh, has roots in orality. And there are more stories and poetry in, you know, that are not written down that are not in written languages, they're just memorized and spoken and sung yes. and, and so on. I, I, I worked on, I don't think anybody ever really picked up on it, but there were three books of poetry in which I directly dealt with the question of orality. Yeah. And it started out in uh, one of the woman who fell from the sky. I was, I was wondering if that, because I remember the arrangement of that one being, it's just, it's just different. Like when I got it, I was like, Oh, what am I reading here? This is not like this book. This is not like this book. This is something different. And I don't think any people got it. I think it just, you know, it kind of went by the wayside. Yeah. Because it was about, 
it wasn't about trying to explain the poems. It was like, how does this poem occur? It is an oral, the poem is a piece of virality, even as it's a poem. And these other pieces in between are what would happen in a, in a, a, a performance, a mm -hmm. so-called performance of virality of reading a poem. Well, I say this or that, or I might remark on something that may not have anything to do with a poem, but it has, like right now, you know, has everything to do with the audience. It has everything to do with uh, you being in Portland and me in Tulsa and generate, you know, there's so much that goes on. So that was, I did that in that book. The next one was a map to the next world. Mm -hmm. So I took it a little further. I did it in three different ways. I did it the same way, but the stories in between got larger and more prosaic. And uh, then I did it within that same kind of back and forth in a poem, mm -hmm. a long poem. And then I did the same thing in one poem, in one small, smaller poem, even as the whole book. Yes. And then I continued doing it in different ways. But all of it was and is to say, one, that the, there are roots of virality in all, if, you know, if it's fiction, it's the roots are in storytelling in mm -hmm. whatever fiction. Essays, some of it could be um, in, in speechifying or, you know, they, there's all of these oral roots and it's directly tied to the voice and to the expression and even to uh, our experience with, with performance and audience. You have to go with your soul and your spirit. You know, it's easy to get caught up in the fashion of the time. But just listen to yourself and go, you know, go with that. Mm -hmm. You know, your unique self. Yes, we borrow from, you can hear Coltrane in my horn playing, but I'm not, I don't want to be Coltrane. I want to be Joy Harjo playing saxophone. It's the same way with your stories or your writing. You have something nobody else does. Nobody else has your experience. Nobody. Not like yours. Kind of off of what you had just said about, you know, um, just like, the beautiful, beautiful advice to folks of, of trusting oneself, you know, and remembering to hold true to that. And so I'm curious as to over the years, you know, like that, that's a thing that always seems to be like, you know, at least in my experience, something that sometimes is very easy to be myself. And other times yeah. I feel as if myself is like off wandering through the woods and I'm losing sight of it. And I have to like try to track it down. And so I'm curious as to, in your experience, like what, what are the ways that you have perhaps found or aided yourself to when you maybe feel far from yourself, how to, to listen for, for where it is. That's a good, yeah, that's a good question because you find yourself in places where you're yourself and nobody hmm. will see you. Nobody sees you. Yes. Or you're dismissed. I went through a lot of dismissal because yeah, it wasn't, you know, natives weren't popular at that time or, Certain voices aren't you. And so then the external world is telling one like the way to to be present and to be known is to not be yourself, you know? Right. And so like in, in those instances, were there any things that allowed you to find, you know, to have that compass spin back to where you, you, you need to be? Being out in the earth away, unhooked from all your devices and uh, getting out into the stillness and the beauty of earth away from away from all of that it's sort of like getting away from the addiction of the of of the lie of being somebody else you know getting away yes. from the it's it is kind of an addiction these devices are addictive and Definitely. um but getting away and just listening i have found because sometimes i'll get up i have so much going on i have a lot of projects and then i you know with this position i have a lot of demands on me i've met a lot of people through the years and everybody's calling in favors and then you know i built up i've been doing this for a long time i have wonderful you know it's you know there's just a lot of responsibilities and demands mm -hmm. and it was getting out of control and then i decided you know i have to have I have to just stop sometimes i can stop it may I may have ten minutes to stop, <laughs> but I do that. Yes. I'll go out, hang out with the trees and the birds, and and just stop and be. 
And Thank that's you. important. Right now, we just kind of stopped. Yeah. Take a breath. My watch is always telling me to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there, there's something in that. And breath, breath is, is spirit. You know, it's like we feed our spirit by breathing. We also feed our body with oxygen. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and thank you so much for, for taking time out of everything to sit with us here in Portland and wherever else folks might be tuning in from. So thank you so much for your words and your thoughts and your you, Joy. Thank you. My name is Anis Mojgani. This is Joy Harjo. And uh, I hope all of y'all are finding your way to feeling a little bit of goodness somewhere today. Maro, thank you. Thank you. That was U.S. Poet Laureate Joy Harjo from Portland Arts and Lectures in April 2021. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Join us next time for The Archive Project, a literary arts production in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from The Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support for The Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn, on a mission to fuel your big ideas. More at colehahn.com. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori for radio and podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Joe T. Roy and Alana Phelan and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.